Hey, unfuckers, subfuckers, uncanuckers, down under fuckers, kiwi fuckers, euro fuckers, pitch, pack, bottle, and swash fuckers, all the unfuckers around the globe, we are here right now in between the healthcare episodes, part two and three. We are doing a three part series. They're sort of a series, sort of in conjunction, sort of in tandem with one another, but they're a little more isolated thoughts. Although what I've decided to do in part three is do a recap of one and two and then get into the hospital system specifically. So that's what's going to drop this weekend. And I hope everybody's enjoying it. We've gotten some really positive feedback and some good questions and some good additional recommendations for subjects that we should follow at some point down the path. But we're going to round this one out with just hospitals right now. we got some amazing stuff to get to. Before we get there, just a reminder to stand up and be recognized. If you are an artist, a visual artist, a graphic artist, and perhaps willing to contribute some original art for a project that we're going to announce shortly, we'd like to hear from you. So we're looking for hardcore fans of the show who kind of get the inside jokes and have some illustrating talent as well. And we believe in compensating artists, for the record. So even though we have a very small budget, we're hoping to get a handful of unfucker artists involved in this. So stand up and be recognized. If you haven't already done so, please submit your name and an email address on a form that we have set up at unftr.com slash artist so that we can start to gather some information. And then in the coming weeks, we'll get in touch with people just to see if there's any interest in helping to contribute to this project that we're working on. Also... A quick shout out to Knudsen and all the members of the Facebook group that is really starting to take shape. 99 and I have zero involvement in this, except for eavesdropping here and there. But there are over 500 members in the group, and it is just so cool to see so many of you connecting virtually. And I think it's going to be especially cool when we get to the hellraising portion of our fall razor trifecta of fundraising, friend raising, and hellraising. So the group is called Unfuckers et al., which is spelled out E-T-A-L because everything our listeners do is fucking fancy. So go to Unfuckers et al. Join the group there to have a conversation with so many of the unfuckers that we call out each and every week in the show that have become really part of the show, really characters within, within the greater unfucking ecosystem. And a reminder before we begin, all of the essays the episodes are based on can be found for free, always for free, at unftr.substack.com or you can go to unftr.com to find the link to that as well is our merchandise our very own line of coffee featuring unfuck your morning and unfuck your afternoon blends a link to our bookshop as well as all the sources the resources the notes and art for each of the episodes the website is a treasure trove of information created and curated by none other than the great and powerful 99 and on that note how the hell are you 99 I'm good. I'm I'm a little sniffly today from allergies. So is it allergies, or were you in the dust in a campground once again on one of your weird and wild weekends, watching jam bands? That was part of it, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna say it's the allergies. I think like we need to put you in like a support group, for, like a jam band support group, if such a thing exists. Like to rehab me? Just maybe make you see that it's. The amount of time that you spend on the weekends 
going to these like festival type. For, it, it's got to be doing. It's got to be damaging you somehow psychologically. No, mentally, emotionally, physically. No, it's the only. It's the only thing keeping me going. The only thing. The only thing. Yeah. Well, unfuckers, I've you know told you in the past. You're the, only, the ones keeping me going. It's the only thing in my only thing keeping ninety nine going is in my jam real, bands my and real dirty person campground. life. My real person life. This is my work person life. Oh, you see, there's no difference for me. I mean, we both know there's no difference for me either, but I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. I do my best thinking sometimes at shows, and then I'm mad at myself, because I'm like, why am I knee-deep in a fucking work idea? Because you're like in this quasi-dream state? I think so, but it's really frustrating. Yeah. Because I don't want to have to like black out to not <laughs> think about working. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I'm looking at a gift, by the way. Manny sent us up a little gift. It's a book that he found at some two-bit store, I guess, called Sorry, Chief. And it is an original novel about NBC television's most hilarious super spy, Max Smart, Agent 86 for Control. And it's uh, it's a little unnerving because uh, Max and 99 are on the cover, but there's no mention of 99, which is ridiculous, right? Patriarchy. It's the patriarchy in the publishing industry, of course. Uh, but it was really sweet of him to send it up, and I and I appreciate it. So now it's a fixture in the studio. Just the uh, the pages are piss yellow. <laughs> yeah, they are. That shows how old it is. Yes. God, remember when every border, all the borders of the books looked like this? That were piss I like yellow? when they're when they're gold. Yeah. That's how you know you have a fancy one. Oh, fancy smancy. Oh, the original. This sold for four dollars. Wow. Originally. In Maxwell Smart's new assignment, the fate of the whole civilized world is at stake. So fun. Manny, thanks for sending that up. That was really sweet. And I, I don't know why I hadn't been thinking about it, but my my control agent number is 86. Mm-hmm. Which is what you do when you take something off the menu. You 86 it off the menu. Yeah. 86 and 99. Anyway, so we are here following up on back-to-back healthcare episodes and a lot of other shit happening in the world. We'll get to it right now. Starting off with maybe one of the cooler things that has happened so far on the show, and it's an email from Mark V. That's all I'm going to say for now, because some of Mark V's words and work is going to be in episode three. Here's the cool part. That was already going to be the case. It's kind of a long backstory as to how we got here. Bottom line is, Mark V sent in, Thank you for your excellent work. I've been fighting to protect my patients from insurance and other money-driven nonsense for 40-plus years. As much as I would like to have Medicare for all, I fear it would be politically impossible for the foreseeable future and or the legislative process would carve out and gut it to death. But I think there's a way to get affordable, high-quality care. So, to find out how Mark thinks that we can get high-quality, affordable care, you're going to have to tune in to the third part of the series. But I have to say, I stared at the name on the email for a little while, and I was like, really? (laughs) Then I was reminded that I think Mark V is friends with another unfucker who has written into us and uh, whose information we kind of relied on. So there is a connection there, and that other unfucker must have tipped Mark V off that we were doing the series and that we were going to be pulling some of his information. So incredibly cool 
to have uh, Mark as part of the show and listening to it. And hopefully we do him, his industry, and his information justice in part three. I get my sniffs in. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if that makes it in. Okay, so... Now we have Ray W. who said, in the most recent show notes in response to a question about how the U.S. health insurance system was sold to the public, Max referred to the system as having been designed. I think it's important to be aware of how much the U.S. health insurance system and the U.S. economy in general evolved. I agree with Max on a lot of his response, but I think it's important to highlight that these systems evolve instead of being planned. In this case, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and words matter and language matters, so I appreciate Ray's feedback here. I definitely think that this system, this system evolved much more than it was deliberately planned. I, I would take issue with many aspects of the U.S. economy, as we've said in the past, because I think that many of the things that have come back to haunt us were very deliberately planned by the cadre of neoliberal characters that we cover in this show. With the health system, there were special interests, certainly that were protecting their flank from the beginning. And we talked about how the unions having carve-outs for employer-based insurance, it was important for them to keep that as a competitive advantage. How employer-based insurance really wasn't a thing until it had to become a thing post-war when so many people were returning from the war. And then, of course, how the doctors themselves were trying to form an alliance to maintain control over the the patient-physician relationship as much as they could. I don't think that physicians at that time could have foreseen how much they would actually be divorced from the process going forward. So that's interesting to take note of. But yes, you're right. I think that there was a general response and evolution to one singular notion at the at the root of all of this, and that was how to protect the system of coverage and not the patient. And that was the key distinction as Europe was going one way, we had a different foundational basis and we sort of evolved in a different way. Now, I think there was a lot of deliberate bad actors that got involved in the system much later in the 80s and 90s and then through to today. But when we're talking about the origins of how our system evolved to become to, to come to this place where it feels like it's beyond fixing with some sort of universal or Medicare for all solution. I think that Ray rightly notes that it is an evolution and not something that was deliberately planned from the outset. Now, Jesse T said, I'm the emailer who wrote in regarding whether you'd consider or might consider a clean or safe for work version of your Substack articles. OK, so this goes back a while. Jesse says, I feel like I was misunderstood on that point, so I wanted to try and clarify. By the way, we had also invited Jesse to come and clarify where he was really kind of going with the remarks because he alluded to having a conservative Christian upbringing and how he had battled through that throughout his life and arrived at different places through information. And a lot of what he was clarifying was his background to get there, which I'm not going to go over just because there's there's a lot of you know really good personal information in here that explains uh, Jesse's worldview and more than anything really explains how deliberate Jesse has been in his journey to arrive at where he is and how he really had to push through a lot of the indoctrination from his youth 
in order to arrive at a point that was really open-minded. I mean, and and beautifully so. So Jesse's story is is actually quite remarkable. Again, too long to get into, uh, but suffice to say that I, I was impressed with the care that he took in telling his story to get to where he is today. So what Jesse was trying to clarify in his original point And again, he says, I want to say thanks again for making space for difficult conversations is, quote, I feel like it may have been misconstrued that I was saying don't use bad language or that you should change your show in some way. What I was trying to say is it should it could be strategically valuable to have a clean version of your Substack articles for the purposes of reaching people across the aisle that would generally agree with some progressive outcomes but have been brainwashed by a conservative ecosystem. I'll grant that this approach may not be feasible, but I just wanted to raise the idea. So I I totally jive with this and I I completely get it. And we'd said from the beginning that there are certainly a number of people that won't even give us the time of day because of the name of the show. And then if they even did and they came in and they found language that they found offensive, then they may not even consider us an authoritative source or somebody or a show worth listening to. And that, on the latter point, that's certainly more of somebody's prerogative that we wouldn't change the nature of how we approach any of the subject matter. The name of the show, as I've alluded to before, is a blessing and a curse because it's going to be, it's it's a good marketing device that gets more people uh, maybe curious about what we do. And in which case, if they're not offended by bad language, I think that they're along for the ride and they stay with us and it's good and they challenge us or they... Uh, Maybe they align with us, but either way, if they can get past the name, then I think we have a really good shot at having a having a a productive dialogue. Uh, Having a clean substack. What's interesting about this is we're synthesizing information. And yes, we're coming up with some original points and perspectives to help, I guess, try to clarify a worldview that comes from a progressive standpoint. But all of the sources and the resources that we have out there are available and do a much better job than I certainly do synthesizing them. It's just that they're so voluminous, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I wonder what it would look like if we posted clean versions of certain essays in in forums where you really didn't know what our backstory was, where we were coming from and our perspective, and they seemed like more, you know, straightforward, almost academic pieces how people would respond to them if they were, you know, hardwired as conservative. I don't know what format that would take or how we would do that. Having a, quote, clean version of our Substack is still going to, you're still going to understand that it's us and that it's coming from a pro- progressive standpoint. The, the, key, the question really is, if the information, independent of all of the marketing wraparounds that this comes with, with the podcast, the Substack, and all the places that you find us, if this just existed on some other academic profile, would it be interpreted in a way that was, I guess, not favorable, but I guess more objective, depending upon the person who's viewing it? So uh, it's a question that we can't answer that we're not going to tailor our, our information to. But one of the things that Jesse said is, you know, he'd be more than happy to try and figure out a way to do that himself. If somebody wants to take it and strip it down and put it somewhere else as an experiment to see how it lands, I'm all for it. I think that's really cool. And, you know, we have pride of authorship in in the way that we approach things. And I certainly don't want people just ripping stuff off and sticking it in other places. But this is kind of a useful thought experiment to see how it lands without some of the positioning that is just inherent to the way that we do the show. 
he lands on another point here, which is, if a couple of things had gone slightly differently in my life, it is no hyperbole for me to postulate that I would have likely become an incel driving a van into a crowd of people at a protest or part of the mob at January 6th or any number of similarly horrifying thoughts simply because I almost fell into a dangerous and toxic rabbit hole in a moment of vulnerability. Information saved me, but it could just as easily have destroyed me as it has done so many others. So I wanted to include that one biographical piece at the very end to come back to something that we don't talk about often, but is extremely important to us. We have a lot of fun in show notes. We obviously have sort of a a tongue-in-cheek approach to the way we put content together and the clips that we use, and we try to present things at times in a fun way that's more engaging or, or more entertaining, but always trying to educate and push to a point. And sometimes our healthy outrage certainly shines through. Sometimes we're just deeply saddened by world events or something that we're, we're studying and it really gets to us. So there's a whole range of emotions that we go through when we're putting the work together and when we talk about it and we dissect it in show notes and through everything that we do. But beneath it all is a desire to get the information right and to get it to a wider public that uses it to feel less, I would say, disconnected. So if you're ever feeling like you're isolated and disconnected and and am I the only one that's feeling these things, hopefully we're giving you a sense of connective tissue to the rest of the world to say it's okay. You might feel this way, but you're you're with others and, and there's strength in numbers of people that want the world to be better. But more importantly, we take this seriously because, as Jesse says, information really does matter. And how people interpret it changes the direction of their lives and changes subsequently the direction of the lives of the people around them. In the case of the person driving a van through a mob, like you're impacting a lot of other people in a a way because... Somebody has infected you with information. Maybe you've been, you were open to it to begin with, and, and that's on you. But the people, the purveyors of these information have a tremendous responsibility to get it right, to interpret it in a way that is productive, and to not be in, not be in a mindset to just capitalize on growing an audience because certain information is very salacious. That was a portion of the discussion 99 we're having related to this dark web discussion. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because it, it's kind of fascinating. And, and I, I feel like 99 is much more positioned to to help us formulate our thoughts going forward on this. And we were actually talking about that before. But this idea that there are people more so on the conservative spectrum that have figured out that driving a hard lane into the alt-right ends in a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And it really does. There's a lot of money on the right being thrown at anyone that can gain an audience. And it's a very dangerous thing. And a lot of the people that are taking in this information and then parting with their money or supporting them through products and buying survival kits and you know, all sorts of formulas and things to, to extend and save your life and live off the land because Armageddon's coming and they're going to take your guns and That's one way of monetization. There's a lot of these people that just get paid directly by billionaires that are looking to destroy 
the social fabric of the country. And I'm not sure how widely understood that actually is. We talk about it, and I think 99, you and I sort of, we, we understand that, and it's sort of a given in our world. But I don't know how much of that, how much of that connects with the broader audience. And it, what's so funny about it is it's like the conservative set knows to blame Soros for being the billionaire who's trying to destroy the country when all of these other billionaires on the right are hidden behind the scenes and they're cloaked somehow to their audience and they can't see the transactions and the financial transactions that are going through. We talked about it with Prager. A lot of this is coming to is coming out in the InfoWars mess with Alex Jones and his conservative benefactors, his billionaire benefactors. And I would encourage, I know she's not everybody's cup of tea, but Abby Martin is still one of my favorite journalists and she does currently The Empire Files. She hosts a podcast called Media Roots with her brother, Robbie. And they have a two-part series recently on Alex Jones as the useful idiot in the conservative movement that delegitimized so many things in the what became a conspiratorial sector. Like people that had questions about the official 9-11 narrative and the original truther movement the flames and the fuel that were added by people like Alex Jones along the way, and that's just one example among many, turned out after all these years to be extremely deliberate. And he was being paid to do that by conservative sources to be looked at to because they knew that anytime he was appended to these things, it automatically turned it into a conspiracy and delegitimized the claims. So almost no matter what it was, he became that useful idiot the InfoWars people don't know that he's on the dole and that he's on the payroll of conservative billionaire benefactors. That would never occur to them because he's saying one thing, but, you know, living another truth. But there's a reason why he can be sued for $50 million and still be in business. I mean, he makes hundreds of millions of dollars through InfoWars. And you just line them all up. I mean, Ben Shapiro's organization is, I mean, massive, financially massive. And I don't think people really get that. So anyway, what I appreciate is how Jesse took the time to give his entire journey to talk about, no, 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 it's not that I'm saying don't be potty mouth when you're trying to approach. It's that I was over there and I know how I was hardwired to accept or not accept certain information. And he references Jordan Peterson a lot and how Jordan Peterson presented to a certain subset of the Christian white male Christian archetype with language that was very appealing to them in the beginning and how it got progressively worse and and worse and worse until it got to a point where you were along for the journey with him. That is indoctrination. That's the nature of propaganda. We're the antidote to that. And we have to be even better than than everything that they put out on the right in order to be the antidote to that. And, you know, if we make a misstep, our audience is automatically calling us out and, and it's leading to a discussion. So I appreciate the clarification that he's saying almost out of a point of frustration, like, oh my gosh, I know how they think. And if only there was a way to package up your your great, really well-researched and sourced information and put it in front of them in a way that they would be more prepared to, to consume it, that's all that he was originally getting at. So I appreciate that clarification. I, I'm definitely kind of blown away that he was that he revealed his journey. And I think it's an important one to serve as a reminder to us and other shows that this shit matters. We have fun. 
but it really matters and it does change lives and we do take that very seriously. Yeah, and in addition to us being a sort of antidote to the problem, I think that's why, at least personally, I do love all these cult podcasts because it's not that I revel in other people's suffering or their experiences, but there is just a pervasive narrative that when you talk to someone who is in a cult where you're like, that would never happen to me. And yet there are cults everywhere, you know, even if it's not because they go to Jonestown, they go to the extreme, but there are cults of one. There are mainstream cults just with different sounding names. So why I like listening to cult content so much is because I like to arm myself with the tools to combat the indoctrination of my own life. So that's why I'm always kind of championing and mentioning these podcasts and blogs and whatever, because I do think it goes hand in hand with what we're talking about so well right now, because the cult movement, as I see it, there are still plenty of, I mean, the word cult is widely debated on what it, what a cult actually consists of, but like a high control group or something or coercive control group, I think probably more of them exist in a political sphere right now than maybe in the spiritual, you know, the faux spirituality that, I mean, those still exist as well, but I think it's interesting. And, you know, you said indoctrination before, and that's what made me think yeah. about it. There's an actual podcast called Indoctrination, like the N is capitalized. That's that one's, clever. It's a good one. Yeah, she's a, I believe she's a psychologist. Um, her name's Rachel. There's a, there's so many good resources and they have people just from all, and I also like that a lot of these podcasts, they're not just a celebrity telling their story or whatever. It's like, everyday people that you would just run into on the street that have a story where it's like, yeah, I was in this high control group for 15 years, 30 years, 50 years, like amazing stories and they got out and here they are. So if, you know, that I think that aligns really well with wh where we could go with the dark web, the intellectual dark web conversation and how we approach it. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that. High control group. Yeah. Is that a, just a subsection or is that a nicer way of saying cult or a better? I think so. There's, you know, there's a lot of like there's a lot of movements within the the cult uh, awareness movement. And there's a lot of discussion of language. There's mm -hmm. an entire book called Cultish by Amanda Montel. And it's about. Well, that was a big book, right? Did you mention that before? I don't know if I have mentioned that book because I haven't read it. Okay, I sounds usually, familiar. I usually don't like to shill for books I haven't read just in case. Well, that's fair. But I, I, I trust her. I mean, she's like studies linguistics. So she studies the language of cults. So high control group is sort of the newer accepted terminology, like the 21st century version of, of a cult. Just by is that to just sort of differentiate between like, it's if you want to have Jonestown in your mind as a cult, that's fine. But this is just as as nah, not just as bad but this is this is a different form of control and that's why we're creating sort of subsection and identities within a group yeah that's part of it but i think it's also just that i think it's to stray away from someone who's in um trying to think of like a like nexium or something so like it wasn't a death cult it wasn't heaven's gate you know those are right. those were like death cults but they were also you know they were they could have led to deaths because he was making women starve themselves to the point where like they didn't menstruate anymore and you know making them into his personal harem so it's like yeah it wasn't a death cult like Jonestown but there were these aspects of really high control so I think it's to help the uninitiated in the into the world understand so you know let's say you ran into someone at like 
I don't know, a bar from high school. You were like, oh, how have you been? And they were like, well, I just got out of a cult. You'd be like, well, that's <laughs> fucked up. But if they were like, yeah, I, I just got out of like this high control group. You know, it was like, it was really abusive. I was following this person who was supposed to be my business mentor, but it turned out then he ran my whole life. Like stuff like that where it sort of helps people understand better. And it's interesting because I have a, one of my closest friends, mom, his mom was managed by a high control individual, somebody that after her husband passed away, this woman kind of came in and latched onto her. And you could say it was like a, a cult-like relationship. Totally. Where this woman just literally controlled her her thoughts, finances, her relationships. And yeah. you wouldn't say she was a member of a cult, but it was a cult of one. Yeah. And so, yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, it's it's actually, it's quite scary because... Like how I didn't want to start this show and you're like, you're going to write it and we have deadlines and you're going to do this. Well, we both know that we're in each other's cult of one, which is definitely <laughs> a problem, but that's a that's a story for another day. It's like a mid-level control group. No, I think. Pretty high control. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But we're equally controlling in different ways. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But okay. but yeah, so that's that's the tea on that. Okay. Could talk forever about it. One day I'll get my spinoff show. That's right. 99 unfucking cults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so this email was uh, sandwiched between the healthcare emails, but we'll we'll go back to healthcare now. Okay. So we heard from Phil S. I think we heard from him last week, and we mentioned him in the original show, the the first healthcare installment, because he had sent in a bunch of great resources. So Phil said, "Excellent intro and table setting on healthcare. Just listen to part two. Thanks for embarking on and tackling this behemoth topic." So Phil sent in a few additional topics that we might consider regarding healthcare and told us to buckle up. He passed along his thoughts and resources on each. So it's too long to get into, but I think it's worth highlighting the topics themselves. So the first one is surprise billing. This has been a hot topic lately as the Congress passed an imperfect, quote, no surprises act in an attempt to rectify an egregious practice of double and triple dipping, leaving unsuspecting patients with enormous bills from multiple unanticipated sources, usually in the context of an emergency that the insurance companies have found a way to weasel out of. And then also dehumanization of vulnerable groups, including people who use drugs, immigrants, people experiencing incarceration, people from, quote, non-American cultures, and people who can get pregnant. And three, on a related note, uh, racism is medicine. Where to even begin? Foundation lies in native genocide and slavery, formalized in the work of plantation doctors in the 17 and 1800s, most notably, quote, the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, who performed countless experimental procedures without anesthesia on non-consenting and unconsentable enslaved women. Well, also, I've read about Sims. That is yeah. a horrifying story. Yeah. Also, obviously, Tuskegee. Two more, I think. So four substance use disorders are my personal area of interest. There's so much to unfuck here. And you began this work in the War on Drugs episode, which is the foundation of our current state of affairs. Our modern system of addiction care in many ways epitomizes the worst aspects of healthcare in a broader sense. And then abortion. Obviously, this is huge and there's so much to unfuck. I think the nexus is through the line from the advent of modern medicine dominated by white men, marginalizing midwives and other traditional practitioners, to the underground abortion networks of the early to mid-1900s, to the unholy union between... I'm just getting more nasally and nasally as I talk. The unholy union. The unholy union between Reagan-era conservatives and the evangelical movement, 
culminating in the modern terrorist organizations that utilize violence and shame to intimidate and demoralize providers and seekers of abortion care, while also stigmatizing abortion services and building coalitions in Congress and the Supreme Court that have brought us to the terrible present legal circumstance we're in. You think Phil knows his shit? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) sounds like it. So in terms of part three, I don't think that any of these are technically going to make it into this third part. So I think it's useful for us to outline this to demonstrate that, well, first of all, we may tackle some of these topics down the road, but also it just illustrates how impossible this is to do as a subsection of a of a larger podcast. I mean, it's just that big. So that's why we're going to stay focused on, I guess, sort of the economic lane and the legislative lane, because that's just more in our wheelhouse. But there are so many really great resources. He lists a few of them here. And I think that we've we've been listing them out. There's If you have other great podcast resources, books or articles or journals that you think it's really important to help build people's knowledge. Send it into us and we will share them and, and put them out on the website because I still think that of all the topics that we've done, this one probably generates the most, the, I guess, the the biggest volume of response, but also the, the deepest and most thoughtful. Again, everybody has an experience with healthcare. It's just a part of, it's a part of life and death and, our, and everything that we experience as human beings. So this has been a really interesting and and fun experiment for us to go through, but there's just no way we're going to do the entire topic justice. Yeah, and I'm sure we will do more parts in the future. I mean, it's part three, but it's not a period. It's a comma. That's right. All right. So moving on, we've got Aaron N. who said, oh, so we had asked what the Kiwi fucker experience was because we didn't know much about the healthcare system in New Zealand. So as always, the Kiwi fuckers answer the call and Aaron sent in this. It is state run, but also with private hospitals for those who have money and do not wish to wait in the queue. Before the 1980s, New Zealand was very socialist and hospitals and doctors were taken for granted. But then the IMF and the World Bank apparently leaned on our government, saying if we wanted to borrow money, it would pay to crank up some austerity and dial down the socialism. And as our dollar lost a lot of value, they offered to take our shiny white English-speaking doctors overseas for financial redeployment. Also, with a fancy new economy, you need to import migrant workers and lots and lots of tourists to build up the tourism industry who also need healthcare. Needless to say, this is a strain on the system that has been hit for decades by the razor gangs. Huh. I actually want to stay here for a second on fuckers and sort of work through this out loud. They have, like most other countries and what we've covered in the, in the last episode, most places that even have universal coverage and, and some sort of universal insurance scheme also have private insurers for that next level concierge, immediate and or elective type medicine. That is totally fucking normal. And there's an idea in this country that if we have Medicare for all, it'll put all the insurance companies out of business. And it's just not the case. There are private insurance systems. There are just aren't insurance systems that literally run everything in other countries. So there's that. But I want to go back to what Aaron said about before the 80s, New Zealand was very socialist. 
and hospitals and doctors were taken for granted. But then the IMF and the World Bank apparently leaned on our government, okay, saying if we wanted to borrow money, it would pay to crank up some austerity and dial down the socialism. So this is really important. When I first read this, I took this as doctors and hospitals were sort of like second-class citizens. Taken for granted, meaning that they were outstanding, top-notch, first-class citizens and first-class care and all of that, and it's something that they took for granted. So that was actually my misinterpretation originally. What's interesting about the IMF and the World Bank, that has been the wrap, and we covered this in our Global Order of Power and Global Order of Money series. It wasn't a series. It was just a two-parter, a back-to-back, and how the World Bank and the IMF in tandem have really contributed to suppressing the economies of developing nations because they insist on austerity. And what's so frustrating about that is they will come in with these great refinancing packages on uh, sovereign debt, but they insist on opening markets for foreign investment. So if you have something, anything privatized, in order to qualify for this badly needed money, they say, sure, but open up your markets a little bit. So let's say fossil fuel industry is privatized or mining industry is privatized or any sort of special interest or travel, whatever. They'll insist that you open that up for foreign investment. And who, of course, comes through the door with private foreign investment? It's countries like the United States. Flip side of that is they also say, and if you are a heavily social subsidized nation and you have a lot of poverty plans and healthcare coverage and social welfare and benefits and all those kind of things, we're going to need you to stop. We're just going to, hey, we're going to need you to pull back a little bit on that because the last thing we want to do is loan you cheaper money and then you just give it to your people. That's not the point, right? The point is to really ignite your markets and your market system so you can grow your economy and the beneficiaries of that will be these new private institutions that just came into your recently privatized industries. That's why people get so mad at the IMF and the World Bank for those type of tactics. And if you look back at, now it wasn't the World Bank or the IMF, it was actually the EU, but look back at the Greek debt crisis and then the finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis at the time, made global headlines because he basically told the EU, or the ECB rather, to go fuck itself. And that he wasn't going to take their austerity money. And he's like, you know what? Bail me out or or don't. But if you don't, I'm going to drag down the euro and I'm going to take the EU with me. I don't fucking care. But I'm not going to cut the bone of the social service and safety nets in my country just to take your fucking blood money because we're upside down as a result of your lending practices and deregulatory frenzy that accompanied the one in the United States. So fuck you. You created this mess. Don't punish me just because my economy wasn't of the character in the financial sector that Germany or the UK was to dig out of it. We're a travel and leisure class and we've got some industries and we have textiles and all that kind of stuff, but we don't have a finance-based economy. And those are the those are the economies that the IMF and the World Bank and, and the ECB and the Fed, they always come to the rescue of those type of countries and or industries within these countries. 
So that was really the core of what Varoufakis was talking about. That's obviously the core of what Aaron is talking about, what occurred in the 80s in New Zealand. It's also the core at the 80s of what happened with the Mexican debt crisis and the blowout in the rest of Latin America that, you know, kind of got the flu from Mexico's cold, right? So all of these things followed sort of a similar trajectory. And our answer to it is always, well, I'll save your economy. I'll save your financial institutions. And I'll save your industries so long as you denationalize them, allow for foreign investment, and don't give any of the money that we're giving you to your people. It's a really fucked up mentality when you look at it that way. So I'm so happy that Aaron wrote in with that because it adds just another brick to that wall of understanding that this is why people have such antipathy toward these global institutions that are really just doing the neoliberal bidding of the moneyed class in the United States and in Europe. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall. Did you go through your wall phase? I mean, yeah. I mean, I I like Dark Side of the Moon's better, obviously. I feel like that's... Better than what? The wall. It's different. It's just I don't even think they're comparable. I think you can pair any album by the same band, technically. I, re- I really think it's... Well, it's I a think concept album versus, you know, it's like a rock opera. The. The rock opera? Yeah. Are you shitting on Tommy? Yep. Shove it. Happily. You think the wall's better than Tommy? Only by a mile. Or shall we say light Are you years. talking about the, the... The music, the concept, the marketing that went along with it, the well, I wasn't movie, alive then the, for okay. the marketing. I'm talking about the marketing as in like the movie and, and the social, cultural impact that that movie had. Tom, what did Tommy do? Pinball how many, wizard. Yeah. I, how many blind pinball player references can you make as opposed to the the social consciousness that the wall brought forward through art and through music? And cha- I mean, it, it, it was it changed shit. What the fuck did Tommy do? Tommy. Tommy can hear me. <laughs> Billy, don't you lose my number? Billy, Billy, don't you lose my number? I'm like also a Phil Collins trial. fan, and I don't care who knows that. Okay. There's nothing right. wrong with that. Do I you mean, know the trial from the wall? You know yes. That no, That's I my know favorite. it all. That's my faves. Favesy poo. It's when the uh, the mother comes in to testify, mm. and she comes in from way off mic. Ready, Manny? And she comes in, she's like, <laughs> This is when Manny comes in, he's like, I can replicate that. You don't have to actually do that, and please don't do that again. <laughs> Yes, I love the wall. I love the whole thing. I And I didn't get it. So I was not a stoner in college. I was a drinker, but my roommate was a big, big stoner. And I brought new wave and grunge to the relationship when we moved in in freshman year. And he brought like the 70s. He brought the dead. I rejected it. He He brought in... Floyd, like all that good stuff. Warren Zevon. Okay. I love Warren Zevon because of because of the music that he brought to us. Just so many. Steely Dan, all that shit. It was mm. great, right? He had a good, good selection of, of quality classic rock. Yeah. But the wall became an obsession. 
and we just watched it and and I became obsessed with the movie and, and the higher he got the drunker I got and the more we were just like oh my god man this is amazing man we would all a lot of us would get together and watch it I watched it a bunch and I liked it a lot it was really great and it's not fucking Tommy Tommy can suck it sheesh okay do you want to hear want to hear an embarrassing thing for about me yes uh <laughs> So up until like, I don't know, like, I mean, it's been a handful of years. I thought Steely Dan was a person. Thought his name was Steely Dan. Oh. I know. That's totes adorbs. My former roommate from college, uh, Kevin and I, we go to see Steely Dan every year. We loved Steely Dan since we were in college. And uh, when I met my now wife, I played her some of my favorite music, which was Steely Dan. And she said, what is this? I hate this. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, let me listen to this song. And she said, oh, that, I, that's interesting. I hate this song uh, very much, too. So I get tickets to Steely Dan. Kevin and I are going to go. We've gone 12 years in a row. Uh, I call Pete Davidson. I say, you want to see Steely Dan? He goes, yes. End of call. Uh, <laughs> Then my wife has been working really hard. Uh, she's in graduate school. She's been, like, working at home day and night. And she said, uh, are you going out tonight because I just want to get out of the house and do something? And I said, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can take you somewhere, but it is too Steely Dan. Yeah. And she thought a moment, and she said, okay. So uh, me uh, and my best friend Kevin and a woman who has hated Steely Dan for a decade... Uh, go to the Beacon Theater, and we run into Pete Davidson there, uh, meet him in front, and Pete Davidson says, Who is Steely Dan? <laughs> and I said, It's a band. And he said, It's not a comedian? <laughs> oh, my God. You thought Steely Dan was a prop comic? Well, uh, yeah, it sounds like a... Uh, yeah, yeah, like Steely Steven, Dan. Steven Steely Dan, there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I said, P you don't know anything about them? And he said, no. And I said, do you know anything about pop jazz fusion? <laughs> and he said, no. And I said, Pete, there's no way I can prepare you for what's about to happen. Yeah. And my wife took Pete by the shoulders and said, Pete, it's going to be awful. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like knew plenty of Steely Dan music. I was just like, yes, Steely Dan, like Jethro Tull. He's a person. I have a long Steely Dan anecdote, but it'll have to... We'll have to save it for another day. A steely anecdote. Oh. <laughs> See what it did there? Know what I mean? Okay. All right. All right. Let's move on. Okay. Wait, I have to sniffle again. Wait, we have to go from... I need to sniffle. Go for it. Oh, wow. It's really happening. I know. Oh. I don't like it. Baby girl. I know. Uh, just to really press the point that we are a global institution. Yes. Let's go from New Zealand to Ireland. So Bobby McDee said another home run. Kudos on the word smithery. You told yet another compelling and fucking scary story that makes me grateful I'm not old and or dying in America. Yeah, here, here, Bobby. And the captain from, we figured out where the captain's from, Pennsylvania. Right? From PA said... People need to stop spreading the belief that government cannot run insert agency program regulation industry efficiently. If you think something is run inefficiently, that is by design. It's the neoliberal playbook to throw up so many obstacles so they can point and say, see, government can't do it all. That's, uh, did we do privatization, like really do privatization? We did. Privatizing water sewage treatment facilities and all that kind of stuff. We touched on it in... Hmm. I gave the example of 
privatizing water as such a fucked up example. Was it corporate irresponsibility? I was going to posit that maybe it was in the Gavin one. The Newsom? Gavin yeah, is it Newsom? possible? No. Because I, talk, I remember talking about the American Scandal episode or the American Scandal miniseries about L.A. stealing its water. So I thought maybe that was the tie to California. No, no. I, I, I'll go back and figure it out. I'm going to find it right now. The word privatization appears in Washington Consensus, both corporate irresponsibilities, America Inc., Global Order of Money, Libertarians Are Exhausting, Violent States of America, Clinton Years Part 3, Stupid White Guy Olympics, The World in Numbers, the It's Fuck For Sure Bill, The Bull Moose Episode, mm. <laughs> The Cuba Episode, mm. Our Caribbean Episode, The Military I Film Complex. Clearly have an issue with privatization. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's it. So the the <laughs> core ones are old and probably a lot shorter and <laughs> deserve to be revisited. But okay, so in America Inc., we talked about privatizing education, privatizing prisons, water, wastewater, healthcare, and the military. And that episode was 28 minutes long. And that includes an intro and outro and probably a sketch, which shows you that I need an editor to get back to those days when things were a little tighter. But the, the point of it was to demonstrate that we have privatized so many really important critical interests in this country. And I think it's worth actually revisiting. So I'm going to put that back on the docket to talk about privatization and then really blow it out in the way that we do now. Because I think it's an important concept. What the captain is getting at here is that the, the neoliberal model is to defund things. And we lived through it in New York. I remember, oh man, they were chipping away. I won't say which municipality this was, but they were chipping away and chipping away at the water and then the sewer and storm infrastructure every year in the budget. They would just rob it until it got to the point with many of the systems in this municipality where they could barely fucking fuck function. They could barely function. And then made the obvious case when corporations came in and said, hey, we'll fix it all. Don't worry about it. And they privatized everything. And the public was so ready to just let it happen because everything was falling apart. But of course it was falling apart. It was falling apart by design. When you defund and underfund these certain agencies, they crumble and fall apart and make corporate America look like the heroes. But who do you think is lobbying to have these things defunded along the way? It's those those same corporations playing the long game. Wow, so you're saying that Amazon should come in to help with the defunding of the police? I mean... <laughs> it seems like it would be the opposite option here, no? Well, don't we want Amazon's drones... Yes. ...surveilling us all? Yeah. And if they capture something in the middle of delivering a package, they could also pick up a perp? What are your prime directives? Serve the public trust, protect the innocent, uphold the law and then deliver them to a privatized prison where the prisoners can go and then just shop for their slop at mealtime with a barcode? I want the drone to be in my home. Yes. Specifically on centipede watch. Oh, so you don't get any centipedes in the bum? Yeah. Any any buttipedes? Yeah. Okay. That's what I want from them. It's a high, I don't know if there's going to be a big market for that. 
It's a very specialized. It sounds to me like it's a very specialized. I don't think it's that hard to train a drone to look at a centipede. It's probably not, especially if the drone has, I mean, really top-notch AI, right? Yeah. But uh, but you want it to intervene before it gets in the bum. Oh, a hundred percent. I want it to have like a laser, and it just like fucking annihilates it. Got it. Got it. Or they can it can safely take them and put them somewhere else. Actually, if we can humanely dispose of them, that's fine. Okay. Put them in someone else's apartment. Deliver them to Kathy Hochul's doorstep. Whatever we want to do with them. Hochul. She just lifted the mask mandate on the subway. Because she is in danger of losing this fucking election to Lee fucking Zeldin, who is a, I, well, I've done this already. Where do we go if that happens? We, oh, that's a really good question. You have to buy me out of my lease and my roommate probably, sorry. I'd like to get to, I, I think, I think. You and I would have happy middle ground in Western Mass. Okay. I could do that. But they go crazy and get a Republican governor every once in a while, too. They go fucking bananas. Yeah. So I think we it's gotta not go a guarantee. Vermont. Just go Vermont, right? Yeah, Bookstore Kim will take us in. She would. Do you think we, I mean, don't you think we'd wear out our welcome with Bookstore Kim? No. No, open arms. She just brings us right in. I mean, I'm not saying we like like share a room. She's like, a bookstore, right? She's got. I'm sure there's an upstairs. I would love to live among books. Oh my god. You basically do. I kind of do anyway, but I. Oh my god. Max has a really bougie room in like the middle of his house. That's like a fucking Beauty and the Beast library. It's small. Let's be clear. I, as a matter of fact, I call it the library <laughs> to annoy my kids because it's so fucking pretentious. But yes. Every square inch of that little room is covered in books, and yeah. I love it so much. It's beautiful. It's, it's and it is. It's bougie. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. But I don't want to give anybody the impression that I have like ladders and shit. Mm. <laughs> I have a fake ladder. <laughs> it's a decorative cannot, ladder. It's a decorative ladder. It doesn't move, yeah. right? That one of my daughter's fucking asshole boyfriends was like, "Is that because your dad's short?" That's rude. He's out. <laughs> anyway. You're not even short. I, thank you. I appreciate that. I've told you this many times. I know, but this kid was just like a, this, uh, he was a freak. Yeah, well, so tall. I hate that. You hate tall people. Brings, no, when your daughter brings home a kid who's like, "Hi," looking down at you and like, guess I'm like I gotta bulk up. That's what I gotta do. Shoes. I gotta bulk. You know what I'll do? I'll, I'm gonna start listening to Rogan and taking some of the stuff that he takes and working out like Joe Rogan. That's a good idea. I know you love him. Yeah, so. he's my favorite. Where okay. are we here? Aniko G said, "Anywho, hello." My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. One of the weird things uh, about being such a Sondheim fan as I am, if you haven't guessed, is loving Mandy Patinkin so much as a performer, as a singer, and uh, you know, as a, as a presence on the stage, but also loving him so much as Inigo Montoya. Just one of the best characters of all time in cinema, right? I mean, he's in my top 50 of my top 10. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go on. Inigo G said. <laughs> I'm sure he's so sick of that. Oh, definitely. And yeah. I would never do it. I would never patronize him, you know, with like you know, some half-assed impression, impression like yeah. I just did. No. If I ever met Mandy Patinkin. Oh, oh I was talking about Inigo, this man. He probably hate. Well, depends where he's from, right? You think every person who meets him doesn't do that? Well, maybe he's from a country where it's like a very common name. Doesn't and matter. they don't all do it to each other, I right? I guess. That's fair. Okay. 
Oh, okay, so Anigo said, wanted to comment on the one huge thing that really frustrated me about Obamacare. Nope, so clearly he's from here. So yep. he gets it a lot. You're right. If they already saw that they were getting wholeheartedly opposed by the Republicans, why didn't the Democrats simply go all out? Why did they choose their own party's health care plans in spite of the massive backlash? Yeah, I should have done a better job of listing out all of the moderate and conservative Democrats that really wanted no part of this. And they were the ones that actually wound up banging out towards the end when they realized they didn't need the 60 vote threshold to be filibuster proof. But the answer is wrapped up within that piece alone where they thought in the beginning they had to be filibuster proof because it was going to be a piece of legislation and not an omnibus spending bill that could have just gone through a reconciliation process, which means they didn't have to hit the filibuster proof threshold, right? So the moderate and conservative Democrats really carried the day with this thing to get as close as they did to the finish line before they realized they didn't need them all. But along the way, they snuck in so many fucking provisions that watered this thing down that even at its best case, well, let's go back to the beginning. The fact that they were pushing from day one for an insurance solution to this meant that none of the Democrats, none except for Bernie, none of the Democrats in the Senate, and I'm only talking about the Senate because they're the ones that wrote the bill, none of the Democrats in the Senate were talking about Medicare for all or universal health care. They were talking about getting as close to universal coverage through an insurance scheme as they possibly could, and they felt that this was the best way forward to do it. The problem was the moderate Democrats were budget-weary and didn't want to uh, expand the deficit. They were worried that about uh, abortion and contraception coverage. They were worried about the federal mandate. They were worried about the state exchanges, wh where the state's going to have the ability to set up their own exchanges and be competitive to the government. Uh, they were worried about certain carve-outs for industries within their states. And they were worried about industries that might be on the losing end of the battle, which is why all of the private industries came to the table, because some people represented states that had very different concerns. Obviously, the senators from Alaska, who had as much say in this fucking thing as the senators from New York, right, had vastly different concerns. So they had to herd all these cats together against the backdrop of believing that they needed every single vote. But the important part that gets to Inigo's comment here is that's why it became such a healthy giveaway to for-profit privatized industries across the board is because they all had a seat at the table and they understood that if there weren't punitive elements to their involvement, they were going to benefit no matter what from the millions of new healthy people coming into the system. So they knew it was going to be a huge financial win. But no matter how this discussion evolved within the Senate, even if they understood they didn't need 60 votes and they just made this a spending bill and they got rid of a lot of those giveaways and they weren't worried about expanding the deficit, even if those were the facts on the ground, the underlying fact of the matter was only Bernie was looking for Medicare for all out of all 50 senators. So it didn't fucking matter. All right, so let's move through this. We're getting to, oh, this is Dr. Hub from Massachusetts. You nailed it again. That's high praise. Poof. Thank you, Dr. Hub. Your critique of the evils of the for-profit healthcare system, as affirmed by the ACA, has sent me back to reread Obama's chapter, somewhat self-congratulatory on the passage of ACA. 
Unfortunately, your insightful remarks on the squeeze of PCPs, primary care physicians, were buried somewhat in your post-show notes. You should trumpet that much louder. The main reason the healthcare outcomes are better in those countries with universal coverage, UK, France, Cuba, etc., is that they support a stable, fairly happy, diverse base of primary caregivers. Hear, hear, Dr. Hub, and that, I can assure you, is going to make it into part three and play a more prominent role as we move into the actual profession side of this thing. So then we heard from Scott L., who said, Hey, Max, Cobra Snafu guy here. You told us some fuckers that we had to ramp it up because of the midterms or the end of democracy or some such shit. So now I recommend your podcast to anybody who talks to me for more than five minutes. Yep, five minutes of witty banter and then boom, unfucking ensues. <laughs> P.S. Tom McGovern is ridiculous. Between him and Manny, you have the best sound of any podcast I listen to. You're here. P.P.S. I love listening to you in 99 and sometimes Manny in the show notes. I know that he meant that Manny isn't in it sometimes, but it made me laugh. Thank you about him sometimes being like, I sometimes like I like it. Yeah. <laughs> P.P.P.S. I think I only have nine years left until 99 ices me for being an old white guy, but I really enjoy hearing her speak her truth. I think I can get a carve out for you. <laughs> yeah. P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.P.
words to how I felt during the Occupy movement. And Chris Hedges has actually spoken about this a lot since then, that in his lifetime in America, it was the closest thing that he saw to the revolutions that took place when he was a, a journalist covering a lot of wars in, uh, I think, Yugoslavia at the time, and he was in the Balkans. He had, he'd covered a lot of engagements and, and saw on the ground kind of what makes power nervous. And in his lifetime, had never seen something make power nervous as much as Occupy did because they were finally using the language of dissent in a way that struck a nerve with the moneyed class. And it was resonating and it was sticking and it wasn't going away and it was spreading. And people took the streets and they didn't stop and they were encampments everywhere. The police crackdowns was the first wave of, quote, justice fighting back. But it was really just the levers of the money class. All of this really speaks to me. And it's interesting that it hasn't really happened since then, but could be misconstrued on the other side with the so-called patriots that stormed the Capitol. Anyway, so this really resonated with me. The, the danger in it, of course, is that the very same words can inspire the others as well. So we always have to keep fighting. Yeah, so then we have one quick link. Knudsen was in the news protesting against the, was it the privatization of his job? That's right. So we'll link that in show notes. Uh, we're happy, happy the movement's getting out there. Then we have a couple general emails. So this one's from Jesse M. Hey, Max, I've been listening for a couple years now. And at first, I just nodded at my car stereo in agreement with everything you said. Then I started really diving into Marxism and listening to a ton of Richard Wolf. Now I'm a full-on due-paying member of the CPUSA. Not sure what that is. Do you know? Communist Party USA, I assume. Oh, cool. Do you call it Sapusa? <laughs> <laughs> in that time period, I've heard you quote Marx, touch on Marxism, and heavily criticize capitalism. But you still say you don't agree with Marxism, and I've always wanted to hear a critique on it. P.S. Love the coffee, and please keep doing long-ass show notes with lots of banter between you and 99. Well. No fear. Yeah. <laughs> here we, <laughs> we are. We literally still can't here. not. <laughs> um, hmm. A call for more Marxism and socialism? I'm down. So I do have an episode planned on socialism a little bit down the road. My working assumption here is that we're going to be touching on Marxism. So I've said that I don't agree with Marxism only to the extent that Marxism in its purest form is purely ideological and theoretical because of the time that Marx was writing in, just like the way I felt like a lot of what Adam Smith was talking about was still, again, an intellectual framework and that the pure form of capitalism that he envisioned was based on an agrarian economy, whereas Marx was based on this pre-emergent industrial economy and prior to nationalism taking hold and taking root. It's not that I don't agree with the underpinnings of Marxism as an economic theory as much as I see it as an impractical evolutionary movement where, again, he saw Marxism, he didn't call it that, but he saw communism, which is what we conflate with Marxism, as the evolution, the natural evolution from capitalism to socialism, which he defined a little bit more, but was still a loose interpretation of it, to something more utopian and classless called communism, which we now conflate with Marxism, that 
extended beyond national boundaries and borders. And that's where I obviously have a problem with it. That was a cl- the the actual theory is a class theory and economic theory that does not account for the nationalist tendencies that we have and the cultural differences between us. And that's why I consider it an an inspired intellectual movement that must be considered, but less the the better parts of it are the critiques of the other systems. That's where I find Marx really, really useful to go back to is his critiques of other systems and other structures of power, because I don't think he was actually laying out a theory for government systems of how to operate. In fact, if anything, he was laying out a theory, economic theories that would naturally evolve to a point where government systems dissolved and the power was in the hands of the people. I just don't think it's uh, uh, it's completely practical. When you listen to Richard Wolf, by the way, I, you know I love Rick Wolf. I, I think he's one of the best resources that we have in the way that he boils down Marxist theory to really practical items. But again, also as a critique of power and current systems. So he gives you analyses that show you what, here's how Marx would interpret this behavior, this action, this structure, and the Marxist viewpoint that would be superior if we could only get to X, Y, and Z beyond it. But I'm not even sure, I mean, and he'd be a fascinating person to talk to, Uh, I've met him in the past, and he is as down-to-earth and as approachable as anybody. So I suppose for that episode, we could probably even do a phone a friend with him, which would be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, listen, he's a brilliant person, but he is a Marxist economist first and foremost. But Marx is is seen as a political theorist. He's seen as a revolutionary. He's seen as an economist. He's seen as as, uh, he even has a literary flair to him. Uh, So there's a lot of people that just admire his literary capabilities. So Marx is a lot of things to a lot of people. What he is in the United States, though, is the enemy of freedom. And that's obviously just, you know, nonsense. That's just from people that don't read him, so. Love this, and I will definitely incorporate more Marxist philosophy and and put more Marx in a better context when we get to the socialism episode. So anyway, thank you for allowing me to go down that rabbit hole, Jesse. I appreciate you. Now, Jonathan F. said, just listen to the F. Milton Day episode and discover that you are, in my honest opinion, way too generous to the MF. And I like that sort of dual meaning. Is that the motherfucker or is that the Milton Friedman? First, there is zero evidence for the notion that money growth really controls inflation. So these are his. this is Jonathan's rationale for why I'm too generous. There's zero evidence for the notion that money growth really controls inflation. This was not central to his market fundamentalism, but it was a central part of his economic dogma. He clearly states that externalities such as air and water pollution are a major problem that need to be addressed in some way. He actually calls for regulation, but he almost never talked about it. And he started seriously advocating for school vouchers in 1955, and it is impossible to ignore the coincidence of this and Brown v. Board decision in 1954. So no, I do not think that MF was a nice, well-meaning, but misguided man. All right, I'm going to stick to my guns here, but offer a caveat that hopefully assuages your feelings a little bit towards my stance. And that is, I do think that he was misguided and well-intended in his... Racism, classism, and very patriarchal worldview. 
Because you can't love all the things that Milton loved without understanding that 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 was his viewpoint and lens and the time that he thought was the greatest in the world and what he wanted to return to was those periods when we were the most extraordinary patriarchal and white supremacist society by law, by declaration, and by existence. And that would be the Industrial Revolution where nobody had any rights but the white property owner moneyed class. So if you understand that perspective, you can say he was a very well-intended guy because that's what he was trying to return to. Yes, that makes him an asshole. Even in the most generous interpretation of him where he was actually trying to overcome the racist elements of education, where he was actually trying to increase enfranchisement, both voting rights and economically for uh, women in the workforce and women in political structures. These are all things that he said. And all of the evidence, as you note, in the world was presenting itself in real time to the contrary, whether it was his monetary policy, his education philosophy, or just his worldview on market economies. It was all there for the taking to be seen that he was wrong. But he believed in it so dogmatically, he instead of saying that I'm wrong, he'd say, I'm still right. You're just doing what I said wrong. So all of this still makes him an asshole, right? But I do think that in his real fundamental way, he thought that he could cure everything with his free market dogma and ideology. What makes him a dickhead, in my opinion, is the fact that he was such an egomaniac that he couldn't see the reality on the ground for what it was and the fact that he was contributing to a society and economy and a, and a political culture that was going to ruin the lives of hundreds of millions to billions of people on this planet. He just, his ego couldn't allow himself to be wrong. So he would always just say, uh, no, you're just doing it wrong instead of looking at the it. Don't you think like you're slightly using a men of their times argument? Yes, and very much so. So I don't know. I feel like then maybe Meaning we are too nice to him. He was looking to turn it back to those times and it was totally okay with that while he was saying at the same time, but trust me, it's going to be good for everybody because what I'm going to do is level the whole playing field and by nature, black people, women, all you people, you're going to be able to come back into it. What I'm suggesting is that we're in a much better place to be able to do exactly what we were doing back then, but it's going to be better for everybody now. Only a patriarchal, misogynistic, white man with that privilege would have that worldview to think that it'll be better this time because we're culturally advanced, technologically advanced to be able to do these kind of things. Yeah, so I feel like m misguided is, I I mean, I think maybe I agree with, uh, with Jonathan F. Just from what you're talking yes. about that way. Yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, think, and a little bit no. I think and what maybe. maybe, you know, it wasn't the slam piece people were expecting because you wanted to thoughtfully analyze what he, you know, all of his suppositions and theories and all of that. So it wasn't just like defamation of character, but. Well, what's so fucked up about it is that he was trying to cure racism in education. He really believed that he would, that, that black people in this country got a raw deal from how we structured education and that people should have school choice and that that would positively impact the black communities. Mm -hmm. Because the way that we structured education funding was wrong. So again, there's a guy that has all the correct inputs and still has the wrong fucking output. 
but he did have a desire to make the education system fairer or more equitable for black people in America. And that's what's so hard for me to square about this guy is that he's well, he is a square. He's a total square. But you, do you know what you get what yes. I'm saying? Like, I think we're getting to the point where you, the line between love and hate is too thin. You think I love him? I don't think so. He's like your mortal enemy. He is. It's the way you love, you know, Batman and the Joker love each other. Superman and Lex Luthor. Like, there's, there's all that's for your DCness. Yeah. No, I appreciate you. For You're welcome. That. Sort of like the way that Picard and Q. Yes, that's a perfect one. Right. Yes. You complete me. If anything, I was just thinking about because Jonathan F. Riker in real life, his name is Jonathan F. So in my head, I was imagining Riker writing into us. I think you and I have achieved the singularity. I mean. Why would I pick Picard and Q out of it? Because I've never actually seen a full episode of Star Trek. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Thank you. I mean, I did. We did talk about it that one time. I think on mic, no? Maybe. <laughs> and I think I said something about... I think you asked me, do they ever? And I said, fuck. And you said, why That's would right I too. say that? Why would I say that? Because there was the episode where they were in bed together. Oh. Because Q's always popping up. Always popping up, right? Yeah. Well, Milton's always popping up in my life. And you're yeah. right. Maybe I love him. Maybe I can't exist. Maybe there's no me without him. Yeah. It's very it's very Voldemort and Harry Potter. Neither can live while the other survives. Even though he's dead. But his ideas are... I can live while the other survives. I think my brain just broke. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because I quoted a turf. Did uh, you see? Oh, really? God, no, no. Here we go again. No, this is unreal. Just, no, listen. Let the books be no, no, the books. No, no, okay? this She's is an this is separate from oh, Harry Potter. She has another series, the one she writes under her pseudonym. She wrote this like fuck it. It's a it's a mystery series, a detective, and she wrote in this new one. The detective is investigating the death of like a public figure who said transphobic things online, and she was like. I know people I know people are gonna see this and think I'm writing from my own experience, but I wrote it before I said those things. And I'm like, are you fucking I kidding didn't. me? I didn't. It reads like an onion article, like when you read about it. Imagine. Can you imagine? That's I'm, like if Dave Chappelle wrote a book today and was like, actually I wrote this about it was before all that shit happened. Yeah. So obtuse. Okay, well. Let's go over to social media. Yeah, we had one healthcare tweet from Old Turk who said, with the requirement that insurance companies spend around 80% of their revenue on care, their incentive is now to increase costs rather than to lower them to allow for more profit dollars. It's essentially a cost plus model now. Hat tip to Jay at best of the left. It's so true. It's such a perverted system. And I think I did mention that in the first couple of years, I don't know if I did it in the, sh in the show. I think I did it in show notes. In the first couple of years after it passed, I actually, in our company, we actually got money back because they hadn't yet ramped up or figured out how to game the system. And they game the system two ways. What would formerly not be reimbursable healthcare expense, they recategorize them as reimbursable. And then they just started raising costs of everything. Year one, we got a check back because they could they hadn't gotten there yet. Year two, we got a smaller check back. And then by year three, our premiums increased again by double digits. And then has have never stopped since. We've had a double-digit increase to our premium baseline ever since, um, yeah, two since two years after the passage of the ACA. It's relentless. It's fucking relentless. The person in finance that you and I love that we work with said that uh, he was scoping out new plans and looking at new ideas uh, for next year to see what we could possibly do, and came across a plan that was 
recommended from a PEO, where the top level premium for a family is $5,500 a month. <laughs> Who can do that? That's absurd. Legitimate, like literally. Even mine is too expensive. That? Plus, I just paid fucking $75 for a new prescription I'm taking, and I was like, what the fuck? Oh, we have something so good on that coming up in the episode. I'm really excited. I, about I'm it. doing I'm doing the Mark Cuban I for my other one, the cost plus. Oh, you are? Yeah. yeah and it's cheap. Yeah. But this one wasn't on there. I got a fucking I was like looking at the trying to look at like the bag on the counter and I was like, does that say seventy five? I was like, maybe that's what my insurance will pay. That said seventy five. I had a prescription, I tried to do the cost plus thing and uh wasn't there. Nope. nope. Didn't have your Viagra? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> it was Cialis. Come on, get it right. Sorry. Okay. Now over on Instagram, Andrew said, are there plans for a second annual stupid white guy Olympics? Oh my God, we just mentioned those. That's so weird. Well, yeah. It was there my, should be. Yeah. I think we gotta. I think it was last July, so we're overdue. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, unfuckers, send in your nominations. Well, we need to give them like parameters. Well, just send us ideas to start and then we'll come up Let's with- do, uh, we'll Should we do- vote. Let's, ooh, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Let's do, like, countries. So, nominate, you know, like, it'll be the- Belarus. St- sure, no, but, like, the <laughs> stupidest guy from America. America. The stupidest oh, guy we'll from- Oh, we'll him against- Oh, yes. but Boris Johnson just stepped down. That, but the, the- He would have been great. Lady Bojo is stepping in, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we got Sorry. we got that there. So then we could do, like, a true Olympics. That's so great. But they got to be stupid white guys. So Lady Bojo doesn't qualify. We'll take a Lady Bojo if if she it's is the stupid white guy Olympics. Well, why are you being exclusionary? Because it's the stupid white guy Olympics, and they're the stupidest of the stupid. What am I going to just have a whole bunch of silver and bronze medal fucking women? The best at this fuckery are are white I don't know. men. I okay? think we're I, the best. No, we're the best at it. You you think we're the that best at being the, the worst. stupidest white guy in America is stupider, He's way more dangerous than and, Marjorie and stupid. Why you gotta throw her into the mix? That's what I'm saying. I think it's gotta be. I, I see your Marjorie. I raise you, Matt Gates. Actually, Matt Gates is smart, and that's that's what makes him so problematic. Yeah, that him even DeSantis is quote unquote smart in his. He knows what he's doing. He does. He's capable. He's not smart, but he's capable. Absolutely. Yeah. Matt Gates is surprisingly smart, and it's and it'll. Well, it's not easy it's being unnerving. a pedophile. It's not. So it's that's not, a full-time job. Right? You got to talk him into the van. Yeah. You gotta, right? Have, yeah, you got all the candy, yeah. fresh supply, right from Willy Wonka. All right. Do we have any donations before we go <laughs> really into dangerous territory? <laughs> yes. Safety First is now a member. As someone with almost no historical or political education, thanks, Texas, mm-hmm. this podcast has helped me understand so many things. Thanks, and keep up the good work. No, thank you. Thank you for becoming a member and supporting the show. That means the world to us. At DK on the rocks is also now a member. I love, love, love the show. Masterfully entertaining and researched. Manny is amazing. 99 is a goddess. And Max is okay. This is, and Max is an inspiration. That is so kind of you. Thank you, DK on the rocks. And thank you for supporting us. Thank you for being a member. Every dollar counts towards putting this thing out. And we are extremely grateful. DL is now a member. I love the show to madness. Oh, thank you, DL. Yeah. Well, this is really kind. Thank you, everybody, for becoming members. We had one review. Take it away. May Denny said, each episode covers issues with clarity and credibility. Thank you for sifting through all the garbage to report bottom line truths. 
Amen. Well, that's it for this week. And why isn't it a woman? Because God wrote the word, and God's a man. Dude. Said who? Prove it. It's obvious. To who? I don't know this to be true, by the way, but I saw something that made me laugh. Like it was a legit LOL. Okay. Uh, which for the the kids out there is laugh out loud. Lots of love. Or lots of love. And it was a meme that said... A meme A meme that said, Adam and Eve had three sons. Take all the time you need. So I'm not a big uh, Genesis guy. So my question for the unfuckers is, is that true? Did, did they really only have three sons? Because if so, that's the funniest meme I've ever seen. Anyway. I don't Meaning that, that they had to, to fuck their mom? That's right. Ew. Take all the time you need. So we're all products of incest, if that's the prevailing narrative? Yes. We are all edible creations. And on that note, unfuckers, LOL, love you lots. We'll catch you on the weekend with our third and final for now installment of a healthcare series, this one focusing on hospitals. 99, thanks for all you do. I hope that you... uh Hope that you get some rest and the sniffles go away. Thank Maybe you. you try, uh, I don't know, sleeping in a bed. I did sleep in a bed. Okay. With two other people. Okay. It we're was gonna, like a big... Like we're going to shut the mics and I'm going to unpack a, that. It was a king-size bed. So me, 101, and my little friend. Oh, your sister was there. Yeah. Who's your little friend? I'm not going to dox her on mic. There's three of you. Yeah, it was a, a girl's slumber party in that Neat. room. Okay. We were in a weird... That's totes adorbs. It was like a weird Airbnb with a lot of rooms, but one bathroom. Like five bedrooms and one bathroom. Can you imagine the Faces household growing up? You remember <laughs> that that song? There was nine in the bed and the little one said, roll, roll over, roll, roll over. And, and they all rolled, rolled over and, and one fell off. And then Manny had another kid <laughs> and there was nine again and there's nine in the bed. And, and love you, everybody. do knees. You know that? And O'Neal, you gotta crack the first guy that shows outside. Kids!